Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Build Podcast. I'm Devin McDonald, a partner here at OpenView. OpenView is a venture capital firm based out of Boston, and we invest exclusively in B2B expansion stage software companies. So in this season of Build, I've been interviewing different leaders from top SaaS companies about the first 100 days pertaining to a major change or pivot within their organization. And today we have Joe Sexton, who was the former president of Worldwide Field Operations at AppDynamics. Joe joined AppDynamics in 2012 after an already very impressive career at successful tech companies like CA, Mercury, and McAfee. And in 2012, AppD was at 12 million ARR, I believe, Joe. And within three years of your joining, the business was generating over 100 million ARR. So welcome. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Well, thanks, Devin. It was a lot of ride. And actually, it was, uh, the 12 was correct. And uh, it was approaching uh, 200 there at the end. So it was, Unbelievable. It was quite, a, quite a ride. You know, to contrast where I'd been before, which is larger companies, and then to go to an app dynamics and experience that was definitely once in a lifetime. So we've all heard the the story in 2016, AppDynamics was preparing for an IPO. I believe the filing news hit the press in, it was late December. But in a crazy twist of events in mid-January, within a day of the scheduled IPO, it, Cisco came out and announced that they were going to acquire the business for $3.7 billion, which was way more than the public markets were, were planning to pay. So this, I mean, truly amazing. And I know we all were sort of reading this, this news and TechCrunch and Forbes and just kind of our, our, jaws, our jaws dropped open. Yeah, it was, it was pretty incredible. The multiple Cisco paid at the time was the highest in history in terms of uh, the multiple for, for revenue. And it's really interesting, you know, you fast forward because at the time, everybody was, uh, as you said, had their jaws dropped and was really wondering, did, did Cisco overpay? And uh, what's interesting is that our competitor at the time, which is already public, a company called New Relic, was a couple billion dollars market cap. If you fast forward today, they're north of $4 billion. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were growing faster and, and basically, I think, had a, a broader future when it relates to enterprise. But the point is, is you know, you fast forward today, I'm not sure that Cisco didn't get the better end of that deal. But yeah, I was, I was literally on a plane uh, heading to New York to uh, join folks and uh, ringing the bell and, uh, on NASDAQ uh, when, the, when the news got finalized. Unbelievable. And I think that is the perfect topic for today. As I mentioned before, the theme for this season of Build is really centered around the first 100 days. And I think it would be so interesting to talk about the 100 days leading up to this major major outcome, which it sounds like in the final sort of stretch was obviously a big, a big twist, a big change of plans. But would love to just dive in and, and talk about, I guess, as the first question, you know, 100 days leading up to this, this outcome. So let's talk about, you know, the start of Q4. What was the, what was the business like at that point in time? And I'm sure at, at that point in time, you were well aware of the plans for the IPO. What were you thinking about and talking about with your team? You know, it sounds kind of cliche, but I do think it holds a lot of wisdom in that an IPO is a point in time, and specifically it's a day. It's a big day, and, uh, you know, we had a lot of employees that went out and bought suits for the first time. I mean, you know, we had some developers that were going to go and and participate in the event, and, um, you know, for, for that day, uh, it's kind of uh, that one shining moment. We're in the middle of March Madness here. Is, is what everybody was kind of geared towards, but it really is just a point in time. And so the, the message we continued to drive internally was an IPO is an event. It's a big event, 
we go and ring the bell and then the next day you're back after it. The reality is, is that after an IPO, nobody can sell anything for six months anyway. There's the infamous lockup. And I would submit that the six months after the IPO is far more important than even uh, the 100 days leading up to it. That being said, you know, the one thing we always tried to do was you act Mm. like a public company before you become one. So a lot of the uh, structures and so forth were in place, including, you know, kind of earnings calls uh, with practice runs and so forth. So behaving like a public company before you become one and then once you do, it's not such a shock to the uh, the systems in place. And uh, our CFO, Randy Godfrey, did an amazing job. The board, of course, had been involved in taking a lot of companies uh, public. And uh, so all the structure and so on were in place. And the 100 days leading up to it, you really just tried to keep focus on this is Q4. It's the, you know, the most important quarter in the history of the company. And I always said that at the beginning of every quarter because, you know, they are. And, uh, you know, let's focus and execute and uh, if we do that, then good things happen, including things like an IPO. So what was the energy like on the sales floor at that at that point in time? You know, I would assume there was some sort of balance of of confidence that this was coming up in the future and also a little bit maybe of fear of uh, what if it happens if I don't hit my number? Could I sort of impact this, uh, the IPO? Like, tell me what that was like. You know, Q4 was always interesting at uh, App Dynamics. We, uh, and, and this is one thing I'd highly recommend uh, in any company that you know, I advise or talk to. Our fiscal year end was January 31st. And I'll just tell you, I mean, that's, that's uh, so nice if you're on the sales side. Matter of fact, I'm on a couple companies now where one is January 31st and one just changed. Uh, and the reason for that is on the sales side, you get what's called two bites of the apple. Um, so you got December, which is the you know, close for your customers. And you've got this buying you know, mode that they're in. Purchasing is geared towards getting year-end deals done. Uh, that's when their budgets end. And so from a sales perspective, that's the first big bite of the apple is the, the customer's uh, year-end. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have the second bite, which is your fiscal year-end, January 31st. So it makes the holidays somewhat pleasant <laughs> on the sales side, which is unique. And at the same time, it's not all or nothing uh, around December 31st. Uh, but the energy was sky high. I mean, we we had incentives in place. The way we built our comp plan was uh, it, it meant something if you hit your quota by December 31st, not not January 31st. So you got an extra point on your accelerators. So we really had people geared up, you know, to, to really get their fiscal year kind of uh, geared towards December 31st and their targets. So that January 31st became, you know, a little bit of a, let's see if we can you know, really kind of uh, load up in terms of heading into a new fiscal year with some momentum. Uh, so the the energy was sky high. Everybody knew it was a matter of time. We really didn't, you know, kind of announce in terms of a specific date until it got really close. But at the same time, everybody knew it was imminent. So from an energy perspective, it was, uh, it was through the roof. You know, we really focused on people who extreme overachievement uh, is, is really the the goal and uh, and people were into their you know kind of uh, mindset of accelerators and so forth. So from a sales perspective, it was more about you know their own individual outcomes, and then the IPO was something that was uh, you know it was nice, but it wasn't the sole focus, obviously, on the sales side. Right, and that big push to get deals closed by December thirty first was that specific to that year, or had you done that you know the year prior, or was this really kind of we want to get we want to get deals closed before the end of the calendar year because we know what's kind of going to be happening in mid January. We want to sort of go into that on the best foot. 
Yeah, no, it gets back to the original point, which is, you know, the IPO is, is a little bit of a, a one-day event. And if you allow yourself to kind of gear things around that, you're doing a disservice. And the reason for that is, you know, they get pushed. Uh, nothing's for sure. The market has a lot to do with the timing of an IPO. So we were really, uh, like every, you know, previous year, focused on this is, this is it. This is when people make club. This is when people are in their accelerators. So again, it's more, you know, about our folks feeding their family and, uh, and achieving their personal goals, not the IPO. And again, if you think about it, it's, it's that next six months anyway. So you definitely want to have people focused on year end and IPOs happen when IPOs happen. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about your relationship and the dialogue with the key players within AppDynamics, like the CEO, the CFO, maybe the, the audit chair during this time when you were preparing for, for the IPO and getting all your ducks in a row? Yeah, I mean, things were, you know, obviously sensitive around making sure your forecast held, you know, making sure that there was no surprises. And, you know, fortunately for us, we had this rhythm going uh, for probably a good solid year before the actual event where forecast accuracy was extreme, you know, within within a couple percent uh, either way. You know, so we, we, weren't, uh, we weren't in a mode where we were having to do diving catches at the end. You know, we had some good momentum. Inside sales was specifically, a, uh, I think, a strategic element. I've always said that in enterprise. Everybody likes to focus on the high-powered uh, enterprise sales reps. But uh, inside sales is where you get your volume and you get your predictability. And, you know, we also did multi-year deals, which from a revenue perspective, which is what Wall Street looks at, it makes things much more predictable. So, you know, it was really geared around, let's just make sure there's no surprises. Let's make sure that, you know, the S1 and so forth are, are done and clean. A lot of work goes into that. Uh, Randy and his team were, you know, tireless in terms of uh, they burned the candles at, uh, you know, many ends, making sure all that was, uh, was done and dusted. And that's, that's what really led to Cisco doing what they did because there was never going to be a, a cleaner time to have an accurate look of app dynamics than them because the S1 was, you know, a public document and uh, audited and so forth. So uh, it was more just, you know, let's make sure there's no surprises and keep our heads down and, you know, execute and drive through the finish line. Uh, that was Q4. So, you know, I've read in, in articles that were published around this this whole event and experience that it was really kind of the last 72 hours um, when Cisco came in hot and became that much more aggressive with accelerating the offer. Can you describe, you know, from your experience, what that was like and what the communication was like and how everything was kind of falling into place at that point in time? It was interesting. They actually, it was three offers before we agreed. Uh, the first one was, was, was not in the ballpark. The second one got closer. The third one was the one that we accepted. But what was interesting is, uh, you know, we were actually... Uh, David, the CEO, and Randy, the CFO, were at a roadshow. I think it was down in LA uh, that very day that uh, Chuck Robbins came in that afternoon and announced the acquisition. I mean, that's how that's how last minute you know things kind of came together. Because I, I think from our perspective, you know, we were driving for the IPO, and that was going to happen on Thursday, and you know that was uh, going to be a great outcome, and that's what we were focused on. And if Cisco wanted to you know, change that outcome, you know, they had to do what they did, which was make an aggressive, you know, kind of clean offer cash and so forth, which, you know, was from a fiduciary responsibility perspective, the the only thing we could have done, it was, it's hard to turn down the highest multiple in the history of software, you know, from a fiduciary uh, shareholder perspective. So 
but it was wild and woolly and, uh, you know, probably one of those stories that will live on for a long time in the Valley. Absolutely. You know, I'm sure it was an exciting time, also a little bit of a stressful time. What was keeping you up at night? Was there anything that, about this whole process that was really stressing you out? You know, the thing that always stressed me out, because we had had such a good run, and the thing I always tried to instill in my guys is, you know, don't get too caught up in, you know, the uh, what we've done for people in the past. If you think about it, you know, prospects and new customers, they make buying decisions for what you can do for them, not, you know, for what you've done for somebody else. And while it's important, you know, to claim X number of uh, the Fortune 500 and all these logos that were quite impressive. My biggest fear always was we got caught up in that and we started forgetting, mm. you know, the reason why people buy. They buy to solve their problems. They buy to, you know, make sure that it does what they need done within their own company. There's a lot of personal risk when somebody makes, you know, multi million dollar decisions, which, you know, we were getting several of those uh, as we drove to the, the IPO. So my big fear was let's not get caught you know, too much in what we've done in the past. And especially if you think about it, you know, in a hyper growth company, you're adding almost a new company every year. And so it was always interesting at kickoffs. You, you ask people you know, to raise their hand if they were new. And it, it was a little bit, uh, you know, that, that was probably the most bothersome thing is you know, people didn't have that history and, and so forth of what it took to get there. And so for me, it was always about reminding people, you know, why do people buy? It's what you can do for them, not what you've done for somebody else. And uh, again, the day that you forget that is the beginning of the end. I got it. So ultimately, it was keeping you up at night because were you scared that you were losing customers because your reps were taking that approach of focusing too much on other customers and that's sort of like the brand behind it? Or was it that they just weren't having the best customer experience because maybe the sales reps weren't focusing on that end user or that end customer? No, we, we really drove around value. Uh, matter of fact, you know, we had a thing called a BVA or business value assessment. We, we really, our message was, you know, you shouldn't do anything with us unless there's clear value. And, and so, you know, for me, it was about making sure that people didn't forget that. You know, we, we had what was called a healthy swagger. So you, you want confidence and you, you kind of want to know that you're with the best solution, the best company. You can do the best, uh, you know, outcome for your customer, but it also has to do with value. And how can you make sure you clearly articulate your unique business value against your competitor? And uh, you know, we we had competitors that you know, woke up in the morning thinking the same thing as us, which is how they could they could beat us. And, and so to make sure people kept focused on you know driving that value and that outcome for that specific prospect was was always a concern. You know, the bigger you get the more that volume kind of loses uh, as you go around the globe. You know, remember at the end, we were, you know, in Asia Pac and, and Japan and Europe and, as well as North America. And, uh, you know, making sure that message resonated, you know, throughout the organization was always, uh, always something that kept me up at night, just making sure that people had that clear, you know, resolute message that they were carrying to each of those individual sales pursuits. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty incredible that you were so distributed across the globe. And I think even just for the sake of filling our our audience in right now, we're taking a step back with this question, but what was the sales team like when you started in terms of headcount and how you were distributed? And then, you know, leading up to this IPO, what did the team look like? Because I think it's it's quite astounding. 
Yeah, it was it was definitely uh, mainly focused on North America in terms of any kind of direct reps. You know, you could you could get people in a in a conference room when I first joined, and from a direct rep perspective, it was all North America. It was all channels in Europe and and uh, Asia, mainly as you would expect in a small company. Those channels were deal driven, so you know you'd sign up a channel partner because they could bring you a deal. And the first thing we did, we tried to kind of take a step back and say, okay. If we're going to go international, A, you got to start with who the leader is. And uh, I was fortunate enough to convince Jeremy Dugan, who was running BMC Europe, as about a $500 million business, to come and join uh, AppDynamics to run Europe when it was a $5 million business. So it was, you know, it was really, really small. And Jeremy you know, took that thing well, well north of $100 million in the end. So you, know, you start with the leader. Uh, and then the second thing is, is making sure you're razor focused on the countries that matter. So for us, it was the UK, France, and Germany. Those are the three that we picked. And we were really kind of disciplined around not chasing deals. And so we kind of uh, drove on the partners themselves, making sure that they were not just partners who could bring us deals. Because remember, if they bring you a deal and that's all they do, you still have to support them. And uh, they, they can become a negative, not a positive, if, if uh, you're just dr- deal-driven when it comes to partners. And then from a direct sales perspective, it gets very expensive, you know, to start plopping people in Spain and Italy and so forth, because each of those countries require infrastructure and, you know, how you pay them and so forth. So we were really laser focused on UK, Germany, and France. And I always like to, you know, reference Mark Benioff, who I think is a really, really smart CEO of Salesforce. And I'll never forget, I listened to an earnings call one time. And uh, they just blown down earnings and they asked him, you know, what about emerging, which is code for China? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, you know, I was in Milwaukee yesterday and we don't have Milwaukee covered yet. So until we effectively cover Milwaukee, you know, we're not going to worry about something like China. It's the same thing, you know, until we effectively cover the UK and Germany, then France, we're not going to worry about, you know, uh, branching out. Same way with Asia Pac. You know, we started with Australia, Australia, English speaking does business a lot like the U.S. and really focused on, you know, building a business there. Next, we, uh, we expanded in Europe into the Nordics, which is Benelux. And then we kind of took it from there, but very, very focused on which countries we went into, making sure we had the right leaders in place, and then building that infrastructure to support them and uh, being very, very diligent about let's not go, you know, running into countries just because there's a deal there. Yeah, I like that quote from uh, Benioff myself. And it's funny, you know, for the companies that we're investing in that are expansion stage. It's interesting how everyone's talking about, oh, international expansion. And they start thinking about international expansion too soon when they haven't completely dominated the North American markets, which are right at their, you know, right at their front door. So it's, it's a good point. And being very strategic with where you're, where you're expanding internationally is, is key. And it sounds like you nailed it. Yeah, the other thing that I, I would mention, I thought that was uh, strategic, and, and the inside sales, you know, component. I could go on and on because that was that was something that we had two people in California when I started. We eventually shifted that to Plano, and uh, I think there was seventy five there at the end before the IPO. Same way with you know with the UK, very very focused on you know building that inside sales team. But the second piece was the uh, partner program, and you know, we did something pretty unique that I think uh, contributed to our hyper growth. And, and that is, you know, I just come from McAfee and McAfee is a, you know, it's a huge company. I was two and a half billion at the time and, and they did everything through this two tier distribution. And the thing I didn't like about it was you were paying partners for, you know, sometimes not doing much fulfillment, 
you know, just, just because that was your strategy is to go through a channel. So what we did was, I think, something pretty unique. We, we built a channel program that said, you know, we're only going to pay partners who literally bring us new opportunities because we're too small, you know, for us to be doing the opposite. But, you know, we're willing to be a, a very rich company when it comes to, you know, a partner who can do that. So we, we basically started a partner program where we paid off of net. And what that means is, is that it doesn't matter what the deal ends up being, the minimum you'll make as a partner is 20%. And then the more volume you do, you can do 25 and then 30. Hmm. But again, the, the trick to it was, is, you know, it had to be business you brought to us. So, you know, we, we had to be able to register that as, as something our reps hadn't been working on. We actually even made sure our reps didn't, you know, have that channel conflict. Uh, so we put some healthy tension in there. We paid our direct reps. Uh, quota less 5% on both commission and, and quota so that, you know, they would be motivated to work with a channel partner because it wasn't egregious. 5% is not going to be the end of the world, but it was enough tension so that we, you know, made sure that we truly got net new. And I'll just tell you that that part of our business, you know, went from in North America when I first joined, it was less than 5%. By the end, it was, uh, you know, north of 35%. And you know, it was very, very uh, healthy business. Hmm. What point in time did you did you come in and start to implement that strategy with your your channel partners? Literally from the day I walked in the door, that was that was part of the strategy. So, okay. uh, a in Europe we had way too many partners, you know, and and we had a gentleman over there that joined us from Symantec, and he did just a stellar job of basically moving channel partners. You know, if you want to be a, a quote unquote partner that just brings a deal, then you know you're not going to be able to participate in this program per se. But the ones who do Let's make sure we identify them and get them signed up. So he did a, a masterful job of, of doing that and then basically started the, uh, the, the program almost from scratch in North America because it was very few channel deals. It was a lot of direct. So we, uh, we kind of you know, broke our, our pick on the, on the rock there in North America with a, with a new program we launched, and then we kind of re-swizzled the one in place in Europe and Asia. Uh, but that, that began day one uh, as part of the strategy. So I want to go back to that that point in time, that mid-January, I think what, like January 16th, January 17th, you know, the, the IPO was scheduled to happen the next day. Cisco was you know, in, in the works and, and presenting these different, these offers. What were, what were you doing? What was the team doing? I just want to understand, like paint a picture for us of, of what that looked like. Well, you know, basically everybody was, uh, I mean, I was literally on a plane heading to New York. There was people literally doing the same thing, packing their bags, uh, getting ready to head up there. And I think when Chuck Robbins, you know, kind of strode into, into the office that afternoon, I think the reaction was probably mixed. Hmm. I think a lot of people were excited about, you know, going through that event. And, you know, it's kind of one of those, I used to try to tell our folks, you know, the Valley is kind of like Vegas. You hear a lot about winners. You don't hear about, you know, all the money, that gets lost in Vegas, but yet there's there's a there's a reason why they build those fancy hotels, and it's not with you know people always winning at the uh, the craps table. And it's the same way the Silicon Valley, you know, probably one out of a thousand companies end up the way we did. And so I always tried to instill in folks, you know, this is like catching lightning in a bottle for many of us, you know, to be the only time it ever happens. But yet, you know, the Valley is one of those places that tries to lull people into thinking it's just, you know, walk across the street and do another one. And then after you're done with that one, you walk across the street and do another one. And that's not really the way it works. And so people were really geared towards, you know, this is probably a once in a lifetime event for most of them or many of them. So there was, you know, some excitement, 
you know, when you saw the price, obviously, I mean, that's the first thing people wanted to know was, you know, how, how much was the uh, the stock price going to be? And that was obviously something that put a smile on folks' face. But then it was, you know, it was a little bit of a little bit of a letdown in terms of, gosh, you know, we were so close to being able to experience that event. And so it was mixed. And, and there was, you know, a lot of the folks that had been there for a while, you know, that was one of the big outcomes they were looking for. So it was uh, probably mixed. And I think if you ask people today, you'd still get a mixed reaction of, you know, was it the best thing or not? You'd probably have a split in terms of how people, you know, think about that. Got it. So what advice do you have for a sales leader? I think you've, you've offered up some, some great tips and I really like the whole concept of, you know, start acting like you're a publicly traded company before you IPO. But what other advice do you have for executives or sales leaders who are preparing for an IPO? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, is don't get wrapped around that event as the end all. And, and a lot of folks, you know, that is a big goal. And, and that's certainly something that, you know, like I said, very few companies achieve. But it's almost one of those things that becomes such a distraction and causes unnatural behavior that it, it, it can quickly become detrimental. And I think that, you know, like anything, if you stay focused on building a good, solid business that can execute and execute consistently, you know, and I, and I know, again, cliche, but, but continue to attract great people and then inspire them to stay. I always, always told my leaders, you know, perspiration is not as important as inspiration. You know, you hire the right people. They're all going to work hard if you put the right incentives in place. It's the inspiration that's the hard part. You know, how do you inspire folks? Because you remember, there's all kinds of choices when you're good at what you do, whether you're in development or support or in finance or marketing and certainly in sales. Uh, in the Valley, you know, even more so, you get get very, very seduced into thinking, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side sometimes. So I always like to say, well, sometimes there's more, you know, cow patties on the other side. So be careful before you go jumping, jumping across the fence. But how do you continue to attract, you know, great talent and then inspire them to stay? That's that's something that's, you know, a day-in, day-out job. And, and an IPO is something that, you know, you can offer up as uh, something that's interesting in the equation. But in the end, it's not the reason why people will come and certainly not the reason why they'll stay unless you focus on building that good, solid business that you know everybody wants to be part of. So I know this question's kind of like cheating because the whole premise of today's conversation was to be centered around the, the 100 days leading up to the IPO. But because you mentioned it, that six months after the, the event or the acquisition, what was that like? We'd love to hear about just like the highs and lows of, of that point in time. I think, you know, the the thing with Cisco is they're very smart when it comes to acquisitions. And, you know, I've been I've been a part of a few in the past. Um, some good, not some so good. I mean, I was I certainly was with CA for eleven years back in the early days. I mean, not to date myself, but it was a long time ago and, and I remember we did fifty seven acquisitions and you know, certainly not all of those were uh were something we were proud of, but we got better at it over time. I think one thing Cisco was really smart about is, you know, they understood, and to their credit, they weren't really buying technology. They were, they were buying people. You know, in the end, technology is, a, is a, an intangible, and it changes almost on a daily basis. If you're not smart and, and have the right incentives to encourage the, you know, the people that got the company where it was to be worth what it was when they, when they acquired it, if they don't put the right incentives in place to make sure those people stay, then, you know, basically it, uh, it becomes a, an asset that's declining instead of appreciating. 
And to Cisco's credit, and I think it has a lot to do with uh, they are decisive. You know, to do what they did in the time frame they did was very, very admirable, I think. A lot of big companies, they, they can't seem to, you know, ultimately pull the trigger. But to their credit, I think they also understand it's the people that you're acquiring, not technology. And um, I think, you know, a lot of uh, goodness comes from that. You got the Cisco brand. They were really good in terms of making sure they didn't overwhelm you know, the, uh, the app dynamics team, I think they had something like 20,000 sales reps and app, app dynamics, even at the end had less than 500. So it's, it's very easy if you're not careful to smother, you know, the acquired company and Cisco did a really good job of uh, making sure it didn't happen. Based on your experience and what you're seeing in the market, would you say that they're probably one of the more people centric strategic acquirers out there? I do. And I, and I think that the other thing that they get so I see a lot of uh, big companies, you know, there's really good, I call it on the ground folks, you know, they're out there day in, day out, you know, getting it done. The executives at the top, you know, same thing, day in, day out, making the right decisions, getting things done. Middle management has a tendency because there's a little bit of CYA in big companies. And that's where big companies a lot of times go to die. You know, nothing gets done at that middle layer. Because people are, you know, not really incentive. If you think about it, the safest thing you can do in a big company is say no. Because, you know, nothing bad happens when you do. It's only when you say yes and you take a chance yes, yes, when yeah. there's risk. And I think Cisco does a really good job of making sure throughout their organization, top to bottom, people are incentive to, you know, make the right decisions, do the right things. I think they're very, very uh, people-centric. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Joe. I've enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure people have enjoyed hearing about this crazy twist in events with uh, preparing for an IPO and then Cisco coming in and having such a great outcome and truly want to congratulate you on all your success there and a successful career overall. Before we uh, wrap up today, I've been ending every session of this season with asking some sort of off the cuff questions, just some fun questions about yourself. Okay. What was your, your first job and what did you want to be when you grew up? I'm not sure if you thought, and maybe you did software sales. I didn't know if, as a child, you aspired to be a the, the sales leader within a massive organization. But you know, tell me where, what your head, where your head was at when you were 15 years old. Well, it was actually when I was 10. I actually uh, I got a, a job selling the. Uh, it was a newspaper called Grit G R I T, and it was a forerunner to today's National Enquirer, believe it or not. And <laughs> so I, I found this in a in a newspaper advertisement. You could sell, you know, sell these things for 15 cents, and you kept a nickel. So every week I received a hundred of these and I went down to my local Kroger's, which is a grocery store. And I stood outside the door and sold these things, a uh, hundred of them until I was, you know, out of them Friday and Saturday when I was 10 and, you know, keeping five bucks a week when you're 10 years old back in, gosh, it was 1968. That's uh, that's, that's a lot of money. Right. And I grew up in a sales family. So my dad was a sales salesperson, my uncles and, it's really funny. I mean, I, I never aspired to be anything except in sales, um, just because that's kind of how I grew up and how I was raised. The thing that was different is they were all commission-only sales reps, and I was the first one to actually go to college. And the reason for that was because I wanted a salary <laughs> in addition to just uh, making commission-only. Mm-hmm. And so that was probably the big difference is a uh, college degree to go along with it. But, you know, it was always uh, always kind of instilled in me at an early age being around you know, to this day, I think my dad's one of the greatest salespeople I've ever been around. You know, from the time I can remember, that's always what I wanted to aspire aspire to be. And, 
and that was my first job. And uh, looking back at it, it was uh, it was it was pretty helpful. That's amazing. So you had the the sales DNA in you for sure. That's what uh, that's what as much as I can remember. It's it's all I've ever known. So uh, it's what I've enjoyed doing. I've been fortunate to never really kind of waver on that. Well, I'm sure your family is very proud of your success here. And again, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a fascinating conversation and I really, really appreciate it. Okay, Devin, I really appreciate you guys and uh, good luck and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Please make sure that you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else where you're listening to podcasts these days. And we would love a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we actually produce content daily. We launch the content on our labs website. You can also consume that content by following us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture or subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. And you can sign up for that newsletter by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Thanks again. And until next time.